0: Hello. Mm-hmm. Church fam, it is so good to see you. You guys are looking all tan and summery and rested. Um, it is my absolute pleasure to be able to serve you this morning. Um, if you're new to this church, again, welcome. And if I haven't met you yet, come see me afterwards. And hello to our online community. I'm ever mindful that you're there. So. If you've been tracking with us, um, we have kicked off the year with a series called Crazy Makers. And like Craig said last week, having some false assumptions or doctrines or beliefs, especially when they permeate the church, even though well-intended at times, can make us not only feel um, disconnected from God, but disappointed in God. Um, And I don't know about you, but I think it's a great way to start off the year by debunking um, some skewed thinking. Now, the crazy maker that we're looking at this morning that can have a sneaky way of getting into our mindsets, even subconsciously, is that there's something wrong with having needs and then having them met is selfish. I mean, I don't know if you've ever felt that way, that it's somehow shameful, um, self-centered, self-indulgent, narcissistic, to admit that you have needs. And by admitting it, makes you feel and look weak and needy. And my hope for us this morning is that we will see and embrace the reality that we are people with deep soul needs. And whether we're aware of our soul's neediness or not, the truth is, and we're going to see that this morning, that there's only one, only one who can totally and completely and perfectly meet those deep soul needs. So much so that we will be a people overflowing with living water. Let me pray for us. God, just like the song that we sang before, you are so beautiful. Your name is beautiful. It's wonderful, and it's powerful. So God, this morning, would you just be with us afresh? Open our ears and our hearts. and God, I pray that you would touch the deepest soul needs of our heart, of our souls. Have your way, have your way, have your way in this place, and in your people. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Okay, so I've said this before, but I've lived in New Zealand um, long enough to know that we live in a really stoic culture. And perhaps it's influenced by your British heritage, or your Scottish heritage, or your Dutch heritage, I don't know. Um, But all you have to do is watch a couple episodes of The Crown to kind of get what I mean about having a stiff upper lip. Um, I came across this article the other day, written in 2017, that says this. He says, the key we weigh is bad for our mental health. And in it, the writer says, while we all experience emotions and we all experience sadness, we aren't born knowing what to do when we feel that way or how to express it. In fact, we can often come away from our childhoods, from our schools, from our sports teams with the very clear idea that crying is not what we do when we're sad, that that it is in fact bad. And we hear things like, harden up, just get on with it, get over it, chin up, tough it out, walk it off, stop crying, don't worry, stop your whining, it'll be fine. You're worrying over nothing, you're making too much out of it. You must have got the wrong end of the stick. And he says, saying those things isn't doing us any favors. And he goes on to write and he says, we're pretty good at sending this get over it and harden up messages as Kiwis. So good at it, in fact, that our suicide rate is world-leading and our rates of depression and anxiety are climbing. Now, I know that there are obviously other contributing factors for that, but I find that so sobering I really do. But to reiterate his point and how this can kind of get into our culture. Remember? (laughs) Remember last year? Yeah, I see you, Dave. Come on. Yeah, Dave Andrews Uh, and Chanel. Who remembers last year when a beloved sports commentator made the news when he tweeted this after the Pumas beat the All Blacks and were overjoyed and overcome with emotion about it? He said this. He tweeted this. What's happened to blokeism? In the TV news the last few days, Dustin Johnston, Lewis Hamilton, Puma players, and coach all crying their eyes out. Would the sight of all blacks wearing pink boots have moved pine tree meads? who's like a legend in the all blacks. Harden up, blokes of today. You know, I get what he's trying to say, and maybe he was just saying in jest, or he was just frustrated because the ab's lost, I don't know. Whatever the reason, messages like that, especially in our current shaming and cancel culture, which is huge, can subliminally even can turn toxic, as they can keep us from not only expressing how we're feeling, but can also keep us from confessing our needs one to another. And it can send us in, in, into hiding and feeling too shamed out to say what's really going on inside of us. You know, very early on in my Christian walk, I was part of an organization called Youth of Mission in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. And the couple um, who ran the base were an older couple in their mid-60s, and, which seems so young to me now. Then it was ancient, but now it's like, oh, that's so young. They were kids. You know? They were called Charlie and Janice Green, Now, these were such incredible, godly people, true pioneers in every sense of the word. Like, amazing. Now, Janice passed away a couple months ago, but one of the things I remember about her is how hard she worked. She was a pocket rocket man, a true version of the Proverbs 31 woman, like, no jokes. She would get up every day, every morning, at 5 a.m. without fail. And those of us on breakfast duty, were required to do the same. She would bake bread, cook, bake some more, preserve and can fruit, clean like a drill sergeant um, by scrubbing floors on her hands and knees. And those of us on cleaning duty were required to do the same. Um, She grew and harvested her own fruit and vegetables on a massive farm that they had in Grand Junction to sell at the farmer's market on the weekends um, during the summer. She chopped wood went hunting during elk and deer season with Charlie and would shoot and even gut her own deer. What a woman! (laughs) She's amazing! Honestly, she was, and even played the organ on Sundays, like she did everything, she was amazing. She was such an inspiration and someone I aspired to be like. She was so strong with not a hint of weakness, even though she suffered with arthritis, which I totally relate to. And I remember, but I remember a conversation I had with Janice's daughter one time, who was visiting up to the base with her own young family, and I told her how much I admired her mom's work ethic. And she just kind of looked at me, I'll never forget what she said. She said, oh, yes, I grew up with that nonstop pace. To this day, I still feel so guilty and selfish if I ever sit down to have a cup of coffee to read a book, which I rarely do, because there's always, one, so much to do, And two, I always hear my mother's voice in my head. (laughs) You know, as I look back in my impressionable young brain, I interpreted that being a Christian and being in ministry as a lot of doing, serving, um, and giving with not a lot of time for just being. It seemed to me that weakness and being in need was just not allowed, especially if you were on staff or a leader as I was. You just had to harden up and get on with it. So I totally understand how we can buy into this false assumption that having needs and having them met is selfish because in a way, it does kind of sound a little bit selfish, doesn't it? I mean, who here has ever heard that repeated maxim that we say all the time, put God first, others second, and yourself last. And we conclude that the Christian life is a life of ignoring and even hating our own needs and focusing instead solely on the needs of others. And, you know, sometimes it even sounds counterintuitive when you hear the safety briefing on a plane about oxygen masks. And if you're traveling with children, um, what do the flight crew always tell you to do in case of an emergency? Put on the oxygen mask on yourself first and then put it on your child? And I always think, that sounds so wrong. (laughs) sounds weird to do because our instinct is to um, help our child first. Henry Cloud and John Townsend, um, two world-renowned Christian clinical psychologists, in their book called Crazy Beliefs That Can Drive Us Crazy, which inspired this series, actually, um, define selfishness this way. They say this, selfishness has to do with the fixation on our own wishes and desires to the exclusion of our responsibility to love others. Notice the words fixation and... Um, exclusion. In other words, being selfish is when I make it all about me and what I want. That's when needs turn toxic, when we become fixated on what we want to the exclusion of everything and everyone else. So that's selfishness. But if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, but what about that verse in Mark 8 where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that's true. We must die to our own will and take up God's will. And Jesus' path of suffering, of death on the cross for us is like the ultimate example of obedience and submission to the Father's will. But look how the message version puts that verse, which I thought was really profound, and it says this. It says, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I will show you how. You see, it's surrendering, denying yourself how I want my life to go, taking up the cross, accepting his will and plan for my life, and following him, putting it all into practice. And as you're doing that, trusting Like Philippians 4 tells us, that God will meet all our needs in the process. That is an incredible promise, church. You see, loved ones, God knows exactly what we really need, even if we do not. And here's the thing, though. We may not want what we actually need. And anybody with children knows this to be true, (laughs) Your tired kids might want to stay up to all hours and play, but you know what they really need, amongst a few other things. You know that they need a nap or to go to sleep, um, whatever it is. But listen, here's the thing that's true about you and I to our very core. Not only do we have deep soul needs, it's the very nature of the soul to need. It's in our very nature. Thomas Aquinas wrote that this neediness of the soul, this nature of the soul is meant to be a pointer to God. You see, we're limited in virtually every way, from our intelligence to our strength, to our energy, to our morality. But there's only one area where we human beings are unlimited. We have unlimited desire. We always hunger and thirst for more. More time, more money, more wisdom, more stuff, more food, more Netflix. This is the soul crying out. We never have enough. And John Orberg's book, Soul Keeping, is so brilliant. And he says this, and I love it. Lean in. He says, the truth is, the soul's infinite capacity to desire is the mirror image of God's infinite capacity to give. What if the real reason we feel like we never have enough is that God is not yet finished giving? The unlimited neediness of the soul matches the unlimited grace of God. That is incredible good news. The bad news is, though, sometimes you and I, let me personalize that, sometimes I turn this bad like 99.9% of the time. Our soul's problem is not its neediness, it's its fallenness. Our need was meant to point us to God, but instead we hunger and we thirst and we fasten our minds, our bodies, and our wills to other sources that we think will fill us and quench our thirst. And if we're filling our soul's need with anything other than God, the Bible calls this idolatry. And idolatry is like the most serious sin in the whole of the Old Testament. And idolatry, according to Tim Keller, is the sin beneath the sin. You see, we have a tendency to fill our soul's needs with all sorts of things that fall short of God's glory and his power. and We try to convince ourselves that all our vices and stuff will make it well with our souls. And whether we realize it or not, our souls need and thirst for God. David said in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now fast forward to the New Testament. And in John 7, Jesus sets up what it is to do, what it looks like to do life with him. And all that he's going to promise us. And he says this. And Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow Rivers of living water. You know, in the original Greek, the water that is coming out of us is from our innermost being, out of our belly, out of the depths of us. Church, I think we are so thirsty. I think our culture right now is so thirsty. I think our world right now is so thirsty. We're looking for significance and worth and affirmation from the world and we keep going to places that are so bone dry and we keep trying to drink and we keep feeling thirsty. God actually describes why we keep feeling this thirst and why we're so tired and empty. And he writes in his, the book of Jeremiah, he says this. He says, my people have committed two sins. First, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. The second, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You see, inside of you, if you're a Christ follower here this morning, flows streams of living water. And yet we keep going back to broken man-made cisterns. And it's sometimes the cisterns of people who aren't meant to fill our souls help us, yes, but they aren't meant to fill us, they can't. And sometimes it's looking for significance from our season of life or our jobs or our children, and we're not finding it. And sometimes it's numbing out through distraction and entertainment, and yet we never feel rested when we do. You see, I think some of our deepest soul needs that we have is to be completely known. And once we're known, to be loved unconditionally. But it's no secret that for whatever reason, and as connected as we are through social media, that we are lonelier and more isolated than we've ever been. You see, it's a vulnerable thing to admit our need because of our fear of rejection. And that fear of rejection keeps us in hiding, especially if you've been or you've experienced rejection before. It keeps us from admitting our deepest needs, so we try hard to look like we have it all together. And yet the very thing we crave and thirst for, we're going to have to risk facing our worst fear to get it. Now, the story that I think captures all of this so beautifully of someone trying to fill their deep soul need in all the wrong places is found in John's Gospel. And in chapter four, we see Jesus have an encounter with a woman at the well. It's one that if you've been in church circles for a while, you'd be really familiar with. But before we jump into the text, um, bear with me for just a moment as we kind of do some serious coffee here. because This is what we do. Let me give us some cultural context, which, is, which will paint this picture for us of why this story is so profound, so radical, and so beautiful. Now in the first century world, the beef and the animosity and the disagreement, the dislike and the hate between the Jews and the Samaritans was like 700 years old. Now that's a long time to be mad at someone. And because of this animosity, history tells us that many Galilean Jews, they avoided Samaria altogether on their way to Jerusalem. They would travel a long way out of their way just to avoid anywhere where Samaritans lived. Now, in the rabbinical culture, the view of women was poor. In the Mishnah, it's their Jewish oral traditions, it says this. It actually says this. It says, and talk not much with womankind. (laughs) Now, that's ancient language for don't talk to girls a lot. And it says, um, and they said this of a man's own wife. Not only don't talk to girls a lot, don't even talk to your wife a lot. And... Um, He says this, talk to your wife a lot. How much more of his fellow's wife? Hence the sages said, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit (laughs) Ghana, which is like a cursed place for evil people. It's like, what the heck? Civil law didn't even allow women to testify in court. Why? Because their testimony was considered unreliable. Tuck that away because that's going to be important later. And lastly, the Mishnah states that the very spittle, the spit of a Samaritan woman is unclean. In this Middle Eastern shame, honor culture, the one that Jesus is born into, the only thing worse than being a woman was being a Samaritan woman. And picking up in verse 4, it says this. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Okay, let me just stop there for a minute. In the, this first century Middle Eastern culture, bells and whistles would have been going off to anyone listening to this. You see, this is a communal culture. In this culture, you don't do things by yourself, you always do it together. Everything is um, measured in the we and not the me and not the singular. You see, it's community, it's family, it's tribe. And the very fact that we have a Samaritan woman coming to the well by herself at noon, the hottest part of the day, tips us off that something is really wrong in this picture. Women would go to the well early in the morning or after the sun went down because the temperatures were cooler. So this Samaritan woman shows up at noon, the hottest part of the day, alone, which tells us that she has no friends. The Hebrew word for friend is haver, and a friend is someone who helps you carry your water. I ask you, who are the havers in your life that help you carry your water? The friends that help you carry the weight of your life. You see, not only do our souls need God, we need each other. We were created to do life with God and with community. And I love how Cloud and Townsend put this. They said, one of the most spiritual activities you can perform is to need other people. This Samaritan woman has no havers She has no women coming to the well with her, and she's not going with the women to the well early in the morning. And Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? And here's where it gets so interesting. I love the Bible. I hope you can tell that. A Jewish male is sitting alone at a well with a Samaritan woman at noon. That just didn't happen. It was so highly irregular and unusual 2,000 years ago. And I love it because who reaches for who first? Who speaks first? Who starts bridging the 700-year-old chasm? Does the Samaritan speak to Jesus first? No, she never would have done that. It is Jesus who speaks first. And I can only imagine the shocked look on her face that Jesus not only speaks to her, but that he asks her for a drink of water. And here's what's so radical. Jesus doesn't seem to have his own cup. He's going to have to drink out of hers. And what did we just hear about the rabbinic's view? That the spittle of a Samaritan woman is unclean. It's almost as if Jesus looks at her and says, I will drink after you. A holy rabbi of Israel looking at you in your eye in the middle of the day where everyone can see this whole thing going down and he says, will you give me a drink? Amazing. And notice the humility of Jesus here. He's not heavy handed with her. He's not looking down on her. What an incredible thought to think that Jesus himself would drink after you, would drink after me. We're learning something about who he is and what he's like, and it's so beautiful. Now this woman gets how crazy this whole scenario is. It's not lost on her, and she says in verse 9, And the woman said to him, Sir, give me some of this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Who loves it that Jesus is calmly and casually, like he ain't got nothing else to do, sitting at a well, speaking with the Samaritan woman, alone in the middle of the day where everyone can see, and he's talking much with womankind. (laughs) I love it. And Jesus goes on to say, he says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Back the bus up. What is happening? Jesus has just been talking about living water, and she says, yes, give me some of that living water, and I'm expecting a salvation moment, a come-to-Jesus moment. But nope, Jesus goes straight to the heart of the matter and goes to the most painful part of her story. Jesus doesn't just name her sin. He names her shame. It's probably her deepest pain point. She is totally exposed before Jesus. So what's gonna happen now that her greatest shame has been exposed by Jesus? In verses 19 to 24, I would encourage you to go back and read it. We don't have time to get into it this morning, Um, but the one thing I wanna highlight about this conversation that keeps going with them is that it was highly unusual for a male to be speaking to a female in public. It was even more unusual for a holy rabbi to be talking with a Samaritan woman But what was so radical was that our rabbi was talking theology with a woman. I loved him for that. So good. It's so good. It's so good. He's not talking with another Pharisee or another rabbi, or not with the Sanhedrin or the teachers of the law, but with the Samaritan woman who's been divorced five times, living with the sixth guy, and Jesus is talking scripture, Bible theology with her. Oh, how I love you for that. And in verse 25, the woman says this. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Here in this moment, Jesus looks at the Samaritan woman and openly and publicly and explicitly when she brings up the Messiah, he says, I am he. This is the first time in John's gospel that he admits that he's the Messiah to anybody. And he chooses a Samaritan woman. And look at how she responds. Does she go into hiding now that the deep neediness of her soul has been totally exposed before Jesus? Let's see what she does. And it says in verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her jars, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way towards She doesn't go back into hiding. I think I would have. Her soul's deepest need, the thing she's been so thirsty for and has tried to quench in relationship after relationship, this soul need to be fully known, warts and all, and then to be loved unconditionally. She finds in the person of Jesus Christ. I know the Messiah is coming, and Jesus says, the one who you're speaking about, I am he. And in that moment, her whole world shifts. Her whole identity shifts. And how do we know this? Because she runs back into town and brings up the very thing she's been hiding from to the very people she's been hiding from. She leaves her jars and runs and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. She could have said, just come see a prophet or come see a miraculous man or come see someone who knows God. No, she leads with her sin and her shame. Her whole life changes in one conversation with Jesus. I was so convicted by this because what about you and I? Have our lives changed after years and years of hearing about Jesus? The security that we need, the worth that we need, the strength that we need, the hope that we need, the love that we need is all wrapped up in him. And as Christ followers, that changes everything about us. It makes us radically free. We don't have to be self-conscious or scared or ashamed. This broken Roman woman runs straight towards those she's been hiding from. She runs telling them about her past, and she's either crazy or she's completely and radically changed and free. And look what happens because of it. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Because of the woman's testimony that in their day was deemed unreliable testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, get this, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days in Samaria with Samaritans. (laughs) And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Amen and hallelujah. Jesus is clear. Drink of the water I give you, and you will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him or her will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, instead of trying to get all our needs met solely by things or solely by people, we now get to go and give God away to other people. We were never meant to be full of God, full of living water all alone. We are supposed to do life with people. We are to take the living streams of water that Christ pours into us and take it to those lives of the people around us, his church, his community, his world. Man, we need it right now. But it can be a terrifying thing to be known to do life in this way. But it's worse to be in the dark alone with all our stoic pride and hardening up. Healing and wholeness are found when we stop trying to hide our needs and we get real. And we step in to enjoy and enjoy the goodness of God. So, what do we do? What are you and I to do? One, we come out of hiding, and we connect with deeply with Jesus first. And you can do that today. You don't if you don't. don't and second, if you don't already have one, jump into an imperfect local church, like this one and you find you some life-giving people. And yes, that's my shameless plug for life groups for 2021. If you're not in one, come lead one or join one, but come see me afterwards. And here's the scary part. You go first. You come out of hiding and you share with these life-giving people what's actually going on inside of you. You be transparent and you watch How this is so permission-giving for everyone else to get real and do the same thing. You see, grace is contagious like that. And lastly, I want to end with this. Church, when we share this life-giving water of Christ with those who are hurting and thirsty, listen, we don't have to be emotional like like the Pumas who just beat the All Blacks to do it. (laughs) You can still do it in a Kiwi sort of way. The band's going to lead us in the last song, which I think is profound. I love this song. And while they sing it, you go first. You get with God. You connect with him deeply. And then when you leave here, you find you some life-giving people. And you get real with them and tell them what's actually going on inside of you. And you have a good chat. Yeah? Yeah? stand while we worship repeat
1: stand before you now is honestly Try my best, but still I fail. And even then, you're with me there. You remind me I'm a child of God. Regardless of the things I've done, well, my hope is found in perfect.